Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join lead pastor Mike Wiggins with the message. Rejected. All right, well, after Jesus started his ministry up in Galilee, okay, so you guys remember um, he was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River down there in Judea. And then he was tempted by Satan for 40 days in the Judean wilderness. But then after that, Luke tells us, the Gospel of Luke tells us that Jesus returned home. He returned to the area of Galilee in the north in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now you need to know that the synoptic Gospels, if you're new to Christianity, the synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're the synoptic Gospels because they're similar. John, very different. But the synoptic Gospels record at least two visits that Jesus made to his hometown of Nazareth after he started his ministry up in Galilee. The first visit is recorded in Luke chapter 4. The second visit is recorded in where you have your Bibles open today. That's our text, Mark chapter 6. Now, before we get into our passage today and we talk about his second visit to Nazareth, I want to share with you briefly, uh, you don't have to turn there, but I want to tell you a little bit about his first visit back home to Nazareth. So we're going to look at the map again to get our bearings. And so if you see the Sea of Galilee, just say amen. Okay, and to go to the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, that's Capernaum, and that is where Jesus lived, and that, is where, that was the home base of his Galilean ministry. But that's not where he grew up. He grew up, depending on what route you took, about 25 to 30 miles southwest of Capernaum. And so if you look at the bottom left part of your screen, you will see the little town of Nazareth. It's there, uh, it's very near, by the way, the Valley of uh, Jezreel or the uh, Armageddon, someday where the Battle of Armageddon will take place. It's very close to that. And you also need to know um, that right now you see Galilee, but the part you don't see underneath is Samaria. And then underneath Samaria is Judea. And in Judea, you have Jerusalem. And so if you go up from Jerusalem, about 70 to 80 miles, you come to Nazareth. And so that was the, the, the place, that was the hometown where Jesus grew up. I think it was Chuck Swindoll that I was reading this week, and he said that Nazareth was probably about 200 or less people. And that's the town that Jesus knew, knew so well. And in Luke chapter four, again, baptized by John the Jordan River, Tempted by Satan for 40 days and 40 nights. And then what, he, what does he do? He goes back home. Now, I don't know about you, but when I go back home, I always have feelings of nostalgia. Home for me, the place I called home from when I was a little kid, three years old, until I got married for 20 years, South Tampa was home to me. And whenever I go back to South Tampa, whenever me and my wife Stacy go back there, um, I, I experience feelings of nostalgia. I'm wondering if when Jesus went back home to Nazareth, if he had some sentimental feelings as well. And so as, as I go back to Tampa and I'm driving around South Tampa, I see the schools 
that I went to. I see, you know, the playground that I used to play on. I see the neighborhood I grew up in. I go down the street that I, me and my brothers and my dad used to play football on. And then, of course, I see the house that me and my big brothers grew up in. And by the way, um, two bedroom, one bath, wood frame house in Tampa, the same house, my, my mom to this day lives in the same house. Next year, it'll be 50 years that she has lived in this same house. And, and by the way, I, I just wanna say publicly that I thank God that I grew up in a home that feared God and a, mom's, a mom and a dad who raised us with traditional values growing up. We had a stable home growing up. But as I drive around South Tampa, uh, it, it seems like every corner has all these memories. And sometimes, you know, when, when I've been back to Tampa with my kids, they're all grown now, um, they get a little annoyed because I'm talking nonstop, hey, this happened here, and this happened here, and this happened here. And so good memories and bad memories seemingly on every corner in South Tampa. And so I had good memories. As I drive down Bayshore Boulevard, ever been on Bayshore Boulevard? Longest sidewalk in the world right there on waterfront um, on, on Hillsboro Bay, absolutely beautiful. Whenever I drive down Bayshore, I remember when I was a teenager and you know, Rocky came out when I was a teenager. Rocky one, Rocky two, Rocky three. And I wanted to be like Rocky. And I used to run down Bayshore Boulevard like a maniac and I used to get down and do one arm pushups. <laughs> so wanted to be like Rocky. I remember that as I drive down Bayshore Boulevard. I remember as I drive by golf courses, hey, that's where my dad and I, my dad's in heaven right now, by the way, but that's where my dad and I used to play golf and I'm flooded with good memories. Oh, there's the field where I used to play soccer. Oh, there's MacDill Air Force Base where we used to go and watch the Thunderbirds do their air shows and go to the commissary and the PX and live so much of our lives um, as a dependent on that Air Force Base. And then, I have some not so good memories as well. And so I'll be driving around and I'll pass the corner uh, where I got pulled over by the police. Very soon after I got my license, I decided to pull out in front of a car, a police car. <laughs> and he lit me up and pulled me over and thank God he, he uh, let, let me off without giving me a ticket. But I remember that as I drive by that place. I remember the parking lot where I got beat up after school. I guess the one-arm push-ups didn't really help me very much. And I remember just laying on the ground, this bigger kid was just on top of me and he had some mercy on me, but I remember that. And then I go by Tampa Stadium and it's all bad memories because the Bucks lost every single Sunday when I was a kid. Did you guys know they started as a, as a football team in 1976 and their first season, they didn't win any games. They went 26 games before they ever won their first game. And I was there because my dad parked cars for Tampa Stadium. And I, as a little kid, used to go up to the top of Tampa Stadium and I used to spit on people <laughs> as they walked by. How many of you guys believe we're new creations in Christ? Thank God he's changed us, right? He changed me. So all these memories come flooding back whenever I go home. And as I was studying this week, I thought, did Jesus have these feelings of nostalgia when he went back home? Did he have these feelings, these sentimental feelings as he entered Nazareth and saw his old neighborhood? He saw the synagogue where, ladies and gentlemen, listen to this, he attended every single Saturday for 30 years. 
Did he have feelings of sentimentality when he went by the carpenter shop where him and Joseph would work before his stepdad died by the sweat of their brow? Did he have feelings of sentimentality as he walked down and he saw his little house where he grew up with four brothers and at least two sisters and would see his mom, Mary? And so Jesus in Luke chapter four, remember Luke four, first recorded visit, by the way, it corresponds with Matthew four. Mark six, second visit corresponds with Matthew 13, two recorded visits, but the first recorded visit Luke tells us that Jesus went into the synagogue. Jesus loved his hometown. He loved the people of his hometown. And on that first visit, listen to this, he wanted people to know his true identity. So he went into the synagogue and he stood there like I'm standing before all of you. And he looked out at the faces of people that he knew for 30 years and they knew him for 30 years. And he was ready to make his big announcement. And so as he's there in the synagogue on that Saturday, everybody's waiting to hear what Yeshua the carpenter has to say. So he asked the attendant for the scroll of Isaiah. They didn't have leather-bound Bibles back then. They had scrolls. And so he opened the scroll to the place that we know as Isaiah 61. If you're new to the Bible, Isaiah written 700 years before Jesus walked the earth. And Isaiah 61, every practicing Jew in the first century knew that Isaiah 61 was what's, it's what's called a messianic passage or a messianic prophecy, a, a, a passage that describes the coming Messiah. And so he opened it up to that place, and I wanna share with you, you don't have to turn there, but I wanna just read from Luke, Luke's account as Jesus read this scroll before his hometown. It says in Luke chapter four, starting in verse 18, Jesus opens the scroll and he says, remember he's quoting Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then it says that Jesus rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. Rabbis would not stand and teach, they would sit and teach. And it says the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And so once again, Isaiah 61, a messianic passage a passage that describes the Messiah, the Messiah who all Israel was waiting in the first century AD. They're waiting for the Messiah to come, defeat Israel's enemies, and set up his global kingdom. Okay, so Jesus reads it, and so far, so good. Everything's great until he drops the bomb. You see, right then, Jesus said these shocking words. Check it out. He said to his hometown, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And the people in the synagogue that day must have thought, wait, what? This scripture, this messianic scripture, Isaiah 61, is fulfilled today? What are you saying, Jesus? Are you trying to tell us that you're the Messiah? 
So you leave as a carpenter, and all of a sudden you're returning as the Christ. And what you guys need to know is that Jesus preached a message that day in his hometown synagogue, and it was very offensive. He basically told them, you can read it later, that the Gentiles will be more open to the gospel than you Jews. He challenged them. I hope if you ever leave Port St. Lucie and move away to another city and you're trying out churches, I hope you will never go to one of those churches where it's always one feel-good message after another feel-good message. I hope you'll go to a place where the pastor challenges you to live for Jesus Christ. I hope you'll go to a place that is not me-centered messages, but Christ-centered messages. That's what Jesus did. Jesus stood before his hometown and he challenged the people. And they got mad. They became so angry, they blew a, flu a fuse, they actually ran up and grabbed him. They pushed him out of the synagogue, they pushed him out of Nazareth, all the way to a cliff, and they're ready to throw him off the cliff when Luke tells us this. But passing through the midst, he went away. And so somehow, some way, he used his divine powers in this mob, this murderous mob, you know, that's trying to kill him. They're arguing, they're screaming, they're yelling, and all of a sudden, I don't know if he kind of did one of these things or whatever, but they, they just um, don't even see that he's walking through their midst, and he keeps on walking 30 miles up the road to Capernaum. He escaped their plan to murder them because God is sovereign, and it wasn't time for him to die yet. That would happen on a cross later down in Jerusalem. In 2011, I made my first trip to Israel. We went to Nazareth. We went up to the Mount of Precipice, which is the traditional site of the story that I just told you. I shared the devotional, and then I tried to throw Joe Campbell off the cliff. <laughs> it didn't work, he was pretty big. And so, uh, we have fun. If you go to with us to Israel, I hope you'll come sometime. If you don't go on the next trip in a year, we're gonna go every two years till Jesus comes back. So I hope you'll come with us at some point because we go to all these different places and we share all these biblical stories and we, we, it just kind of helps you to see the Bible come alive once you've gone to Israel. And so after being rejected in Nazareth, you would think that Jesus would never go back to that town. But how many of you guys know that our God is a God of second chances? And so Jesus decides to go back home now in our text in Mark chapter six. He's rejected in Luke four, and now he's going back in Mark chapter six, and somebody says, well, why would Jesus go back there? And I thought about that question this week, and I could only come up with one answer, love. He loved those people in Nazareth so much he wanted to give him a second chance. He loves you, by the way, so much. He's always there to give you a second chance. And for some of us, third, fourth, and fifth chances. So he goes back. Now we pick it up in verse one. So if you're looking at Mark 6, verse one, just say amen. amen. Okay, let's just let the Bible speak, okay? He went away from there. By the way, that's the area of Capernaum where he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. 
and he came to his hometown. And his disciples, this is a little bit different than his first visit, his disciples followed him. One of the guys I read every week, uh, Warren Wearsby, by the way, if you're um, looking for a good Bible commentary that's practical, Warren Wearsby is great. He's got the whole Old Testament and New Testament commentaries. But Warren Wearsby um, says that this second visit, recorded visit, happened about a year after his first visit. But this time, Jesus brings his apostles with him. And so they hit Jesus, can you see it? And the 12 guys, maybe some more disciples, they're walking into Nazareth, and if anybody in Nazareth has a thought that they wanna take Jesus and throw him off a cliff, now they're gonna have to go through 12 men to get to Jesus. Yes, Jesus had security detail. And so we see now in verse two, and on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the what? Okay, we gotta stop right there because I want you to know that attending the synagogue service was very important to Jesus. In fact, the Bible says that it was his custom. If you wanna write it down somewhere, it's Luke 4.16. During his first visit, it says, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as was his custom, his habit, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Here's your first point if you're taking notes. And that is that it was Jesus' custom, his habit, to attend service each weekend to worship God and to hear his word. And so I don't care what town he was in during his three, three and a half year ministry, when it was the Sabbath day, when it was Saturday, Jesus found his way to the synagogue service. It's just what he did. Now as Christians who live in the age of grace, we today do not gather with Jews in a synagogue. One of the reasons, obviously, is because most Jewish people reject that Jesus Christ was, has risen from the dead. And so we don't go to a synagogue on Saturday and, and, and worship God with Jewish people who reject that Jesus Christ ever rose from the dead. No, here's what we do. We gather together as Jews and Gentiles who have been called out and we're believers in the resurrected Christ and we don't come together in a church. This building is not a church. We come together as the church and we come together to worship Jesus Christ. I hope that's why you're here today. I hope your number one reason for coming today is so that you can worship Jesus Christ who is risen from the dead, that that's your heart, that that's your passion. And so that's what we do, but there's a problem. There are many quote unquote Christians that do not gather each weekend to worship God and hear his word. Did you guys know this has been a problem for 2,000 years? There was, this was a problem in the first century AD, so much so that the Holy Spirit came upon the author of Hebrews. And under the inspiration of the Spirit, the author of Hebrews said, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, here it is, not neglecting to meet together. How do you guys believe that's God's word? 
Okay, I got 40%. How many guys believe that's God's word? Okay, that's God. That's his command. He knows we need it. Not neglecting to meet together as is the custom or habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day, that's the day of Christ's return, drawing near. And so I don't know what happens. I don't know if people don't genuinely get saved or maybe they're saved and they backslide, but what happens is that people, if for some reason, they get out of the habit of going to church or gathering together with the church. And you ask them, hey, we missed you last weekend. And you hear the same excuses. Oh man, I overslept. Oh, my family and I went to the beach. Or, a little worse, there's too many hypocrites in the church. Or, I don't have to go to a building to worship God, I can worship God in nature. Now, I want you guys to understand that Jesus never used any of those excuses during his three, three and a half year ministry. On Saturday, he never, during synagogue service, was back home sawing logs. He was there, sitting, ready to worship. Actually, he didn't worship because he was God's son, but ready to, to acknowledge his father and ready to hear the word of God. On Saturday, in the synagogue, Jesus never used the excuse, yeah, you know what I'm gonna do? It's a beautiful day, the sun is shining, so I'm gonna go up to the Sea of Galilee and I'm gonna lay out and catch some rays on the beach of the Sea of Galilee. Not during synagogue service, he was there, hearing God's word. Jesus, if, if anybody, ladies and gentlemen, if anybody had the excuse of skipping service because there's too many hypocrites, it was Jesus. You know why? Because he had x-ray vision as the son of God. He could see right into people's hearts. He knew who the hypocrites were and who the Nathaniels were, the authentic, genuine people. And even though he saw a lot of hypocrites, he was there every Saturday hearing God's word. And not just that, if anybody had an excuse of skipping service because they wanted to worship God in nature, it was Jesus, because early in the morning, you know this, he'd get up early, he'd go out to some of the most beautiful places there in northern Israel, he would connect with his father, but in addition to that, on Saturday, he was in the synagogue to hear God's word. You guys, I, are you getting my point? I'm concerned about this, because our church has a really big crowd. You say, what does that mean? Well. There's this thing called concentric circles. So out here you have this community and that's the community we live in. Some believe in Jesus, most do not. Did you know that from Port St. Lucie, I think it's down to West Palm Beach, we live in the number one never churched area in the United States. PSL to West Palm, I think it's West Palm, maybe a little south. The people who live in our community, number one, never churched area in the whole nation. That's our community. How many of you guys believe God loves those people? Absolutely. And wants to see them come to know him through his son. And then after that, when it comes to this local church, you have what's called the crowd. The crowd is people who come here to this church maybe once a month, maybe once every three months, maybe Christmas and Easter, they're not committed, they're casual. 
in their faith. We have a big crowd here at Calvary. And it's really disturbing to me as the pastor. Then you have the congregation. The congregation are people, they're here every week, um, but they're here, and that's what they do. They just come and sit and listen, and we're glad you're here. But then you know who we have in the middle, these, all these concentric circles? We have the, the core. And the core are people who know this is their church home, and they connect, they serve, they grow, they invite, they give financially. And we could never be a church without the core. And I am so grateful for the core of this church. About 20%, maybe 25, I don't know. But I, I love you guys, I'm so thankful for you guys who are serving and giving and connected and active. It's, 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 it's a blessing to me because I could never stand here and teach the word of God if there weren't hundreds of people taking care of our kids and greeting people and parking cars and driving the van and taking people to their seat and worshiping God and spirit and truth and turning the knobs back there that I don't understand and you know, um, taking, being on security and safety and I can go on and on, refreshments, I go on and on and on. But thank God for those people. You guys make our church strong. And so, a year after his initial visit in Luke 4, Jesus comes back in Mark chapter six, and what happens now in our text today is lo and behold, they let him speak. Now, this was a little surprising to me as I was studying this week, based upon what they tried to do to him a year earlier. They tried to throw him over a cliff. And now, Mark six, they're gonna let him speak? And I thought, what's going on here? Do they have new leadership? in the synagogue, and so I dug in the commentaries, and the only thing I can get is theories. So everybody has the theory, because the Bible doesn't tell us. And so the theory is that in the last year, Jesus' reputation has skyrocketed because of all the miracles that he's been performing. And so the stories of the miracles are circulating all around Galilee, and not only that, but vast crowds are following Jesus wherever he goes. And so now he's in Nazareth, and so for whatever reason, they decide to give him another opportunity to teach. Let's see how it goes. Look at verse two. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. And by the way, that's not a good thing. Saying, where did this man get these things? Was it, what is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took what at him? offense at him. And so the people of Nazareth had at least five questions about Jesus. The first question they asked during the second visit was, where did this man get these things? Now the reason they asked that question is because if you were a young man in the first century living in Israel and you wanted to be a rabbi, then they would encourage you to go to one of the elite rabbinical schools down in Jerusalem. 
And what they would do is they would pair you up with an accredited rabbi and he would train you. Guys, remember how Paul sat at the feet of Gamaliel? Okay, and so here's, here's the thing though. Jesus, as far as we know from recorded history or the Bible, never went to any of those rabbinical schools. Where did this man get these things? How does he have such a strong grasp on the scriptures if he didn't go to the accredited schools? The second question they asked was, how are such mighty works done by his hands? In other words, how's he doing these miracles? And if you've been with us since the beginning of our study in Mark, you know that there were two schools of thought on how Jesus performed miracles. The first school of thought held by his disciples was that he did miracles in the power of God. The second school of thought held by the Pharisees and religious leaders was that he did miracles by the power of who? You know this, Beelzebub, Satan. He casts out demons by the prince of demons. And so the religious leaders who hated Jesus were spreading these rumors. They got to Nazareth and they're like, how's, how's such mighty works done by his hands? And the fact that they're gonna reject him again a second time tells me they believed he did miracles in the power of Satan. The third question that they asked that day in the synagogue is, is this not the carpenter? <laughs> now carpentry in that, in that day uh, was more about working with stone and bricks than wood, but they did work with some wood. And so at some point, you guys know this too, before he started his ministry, his stepdad, Joseph, died. Jesus inherited the carpentry business and he did that in Nazareth until he was about 30 years old. And so again, the, the mindset here was, wait a minute, he leaves as a carpenter and he's coming back as the Christ. He leaves as a mason and now he's trying to tell us he's the Messiah. You know, how can a blue collar worker from Nazareth expect us to hail him as the king? And they're rejecting him. The fourth question is a little more vicious. Is this not the son of who? Mary, that's an insult. Because in that male-dominated Jewish culture, a son's name was always linked with the father's name, not the mother's name. And so this was an insult stemming from rumors that followed Jesus his whole life. And the rumors had to do with, how did Mary get pregnant? So she got pregnant before her and Joseph became officially married? And we know from John chapter eight, verse 41, that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, looked right at Jesus and said, well, at least we're not born of sexual immorality. And what are they doing? They're talking about Jesus' mama. Don't talk about somebody's mama. <laughs> he went after him in John chapter eight. He went after him in Matthew chapter 23 because they said that Mary engaged in illicit sex and Jesus was the result of sexual immorality. Is this not the son of Mary? Fifth question they asked. Is this not the brother of James and Joseph, Simon and Judas, and are not his sisters here with us? In other words, this is what they're saying. If this family of Mary's is so special, 
Why aren't his brothers so wise? Why don't his brothers do miracles? No, the reality is his brothers, hey James, hey Joseph, do you believe he's the Messiah? No. <laughs> we know that from John chapter seven, verse five, that even his own brothers did not believe in him. And so what are they doing, ladies and gentlemen? They are rejecting Jesus Christ because they took offense at him. Now, how does Jesus respond? Look at verse four. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his what? His hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. In other words, prophets are honored, Jesus would say, prophets are honored wherever they go unless they go home. <laughs> and familiarity breeds contempt. So now in verse five, this is very interesting, it says that he could do no mighty work there, no miracles in Nazareth, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Now, let's just stop right there for a minute. I read that this week and I have to say that I marvel that it says that Jesus marveled. I mean, think about this. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word already existed before creation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so what could amaze Jesus, right? The vast universe? No, he spoke it into existence. How about the beautiful earth? No, he created it. How about the majestic mountains? No, he formed them. How about the complex human body? No, he designed it. What could marvel the Son of God? Here's your answer. If you're with me, say amen right here. You know what marvels the Son of God? The unbelief of man in the face of so much evidence. He marvels when people are apathetic, when people don't care. When they're spiritually dull in the face of so much evidence, God's like, what's it gonna take? I hung half naked on a cross and people are still apathetic and rejecting me. And God marvels. And of all the people in the whole world, the people of Nazareth had no excuse. They saw him grow up. They had the evidence, he was the kid who never got in trouble. He was the teenager, right, who never served himself, he's always serving others. 13, 14, 15, 16, hey, how can I help you? What can I do for you? He was the young man in the carpenter shop who was honest, had integrity, and understood the dignity of hard work, by the way, we need that back in our culture today. And not only that, they, they, they knew about his miracles and yet they still rejected him. All right, so let's apply this to our lives. Here's my question for you. How should we respond when people reject us for our Christian faith? Okay, so you guys got the question? That's important, I'll say it again. How should we respond when people reject us 
because of our Christian faith? The answer is we follow the example of Jesus. Okay, so how did Jesus respond when he was rejected? Number one, he gave them a second chance. That's interesting, right? They tried to murder him a year earlier, and now he's given them a second chance in Mark chapter six. Maybe you've shared your testimony or the gospel with a lost family member or friend, and maybe they got a little ugly with you. Two months ago, six months ago, a year ago, a decade ago, and maybe you wrote them off. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus went back home a second time and shared truth again and gave him another chance. And so you pray about it, ask the Holy Spirit to lead you, but maybe it's time for you to share your faith again with that person who rejected you. The second way that Jesus responded is that he shared the truth in love. You guys know that Jesus never went toe to toe, tit for tat. Do you know what never, what style of evangelism never works? Argumental evangelism or argumentative evangelism never works. You start getting an argument with somebody, going tit for tat with somebody, listen, all you're doing is you're pushing them closer to hell. It's better if you just zip it than get into that kind of back and forth stuff. In Isaiah chapter 42, which is another messianic prophecy, it says concerning the Messiah, he will not cry aloud or lift his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. In other words, Jesus' MO, and I understand in Matthew 23, he let the Pharisees have it. Okay, that's the exception, not the rule. The rule is, if you're a broken reed, if you're a broken person, Jesus didn't walk up in a mean way and break you. If you're a smoldering wick, he didn't walk up in a mean way and just do that. And that's how we come across sometimes with people, with our Christianity, is, is like, like we know it all. And we, we, can, we have all the answers and we're gonna put that person in their place. All you're doing is pushing them closer to hell. Love them. Serve them, let them see it first with your life and then share the truth in love. The third thing that Jesus did when he was rejected is he moved on to those who were receptive. We see that at the end of verse six. Look at it, please. It says, after they rejected him in Nazareth, that he went about among the villages teaching. So what did Jesus do? He said, okay, you're gonna reject me a second time. All right, I'm gonna move on to other towns who are receptive to me. And so that's what the Lord did. I remember when I first got hired at Calvary Jupiter, I was the care pastor. And a, a teenage young man got hit. He was riding his bicycle. I think it was Lake Worth Road. And he got hit by a car and he was in ICU. And so I got down to the hospital and I walked into the hospital room. Have you guys ever walked into a room and you feel that feeling like you're not wanted? And it's awkward. And so I tried praying over this kid, ministering to the family, 
But you know what? They didn't want me there. They weren't believers and they had no interest in what I was trying to say. But you know what? I went back. I think I went back three, four, maybe five times. And I'm discouraged because I'm a young pastor and I wanna save the world. And I went to my pastor, Pastor Dan, and he said this, and I'll never forget it. He said, Mike, if they don't receive your ministry, just move on. And that freed me up. I didn't go back to the hospital. Sadly, the young man died, but they persisted in their unbelief. And ladies and gentlemen, we live in a fallen world with humans who just will not believe. And at some point, like Jesus, we just have to move on. Now, when you move on, you can still pray. So keep praying for that person. But the fourth way that Jesus reacted when, they, when he was rejected is that he hung out with who? His disciples. Okay, Nazareth, my hometown, is rejecting me. And so verses seven through 11, I'm gonna hang out with my disciples. I'm gonna teach them, I'm gonna train them, I'm gonna send them out. And that's what Jesus would do. He would, and so, so if somebody has rejected you because of your faith, don't focus on that person. Focus on the people who love you. Focus on Jesus' disciples. I've said it before, many times your spiritual family will, be, will love you more than your biological family. They'll be more accepting of you than your biological family. So what do you do? You focus on Jesus' disciples. You get into a local church, you connect, you serve, you grow with people who love Jesus Christ. Is this making sense to you guys? Okay, so this is how we apply these things to our lives. And so what I'm gonna do now is I'm just gonna read verses seven through 11 as Jesus sends his men out to towns that will receive him and I'm just gonna make one main point and then we'll close the service, okay? So stay with me to the end. If you're looking at Mark 6, verse seven, say amen. amen. Okay, so check this out. And he called the 12. And he began to send them out two by two. Okay, that's a, that's a great way to do ministry instead of trying to do it on your own. Because when you're discouraged, the pastor Dan's in your life can encourage you. Send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And so these are the 12 apostles, and yes, they absolutely uh, received apostolic power and authority to do miracles. It's very evident as you read the Gospels, um, but especially the book of Acts. Verse eight, he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, Okay, that's that walking stick. Okay, you guys can take the, the, the walking stick to keep those wild dogs away or to defend yourselves. But look at this. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts. But, verse nine, you can wear sandals. We don't want your feet to get cut up. But not two tunics. And he said to them, Where, whenever you enter a house, Okay, this goes right with our theme of rejected. Whenever you go, when you go into a house, stay there until you depart from there, verse 11, and if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, just shake the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. And so they went out, the 12 went out and proclaimed that the people, this is very important, the people should what? 
Repent, you see that at the end of verse 12? That's their message, it's the same message for 2,000 years. And they cast out many demons and they anointed with oil many who were sick and they healed him. Okay, so what's the one main point of the passage? Here it is, and that is where God guides, he provides. This unique passage in Mark chapter six, Jesus sends them out and he says to them, no bread. All right, hey, hey guys, give me your food. No bags, hey guys, give me your backpacks. No money. All right, guys, empty your pockets of those coins. That means you, Judas. All right, you gave me the coins in your right pocket. How about your left pocket? No food, no backpacks, no money, no extra tunic. What's a tunic? An undershirt. Just wear the one on your back. And they're probably thinking, wait, what? But guess what happened? They went out, they preached, and then later on, Jesus asked them this. Look at this in Luke chapter 22. He, Jesus says to the 12, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said what? Nothing. Lord, this is awesome. We went out and, and God provided. God showed up. People were saying yes to you, they were receiving you, they received us, food, clothing, shelter, protection, provision, it was all provided for us. Now what you need to know is that this is a unique situation because later Jesus will send them out again and he'll tell them, hey, take all those necessities with you. And by the way, also take a sword to protect yourself for all you Second Amendment lovers out there. That's Jesus' words. I thought I'd throw that in there. Okay, and so, all right, all right. I should have done it. It was not in my notes. But he, this is just, you know, a unique situation. So don't think if you're called to ministry, you know, I'm not gonna take any food because it says in Mark 6, I can't take food or backpacks. You know, no, no, no. Later on, he said, take all those necessities with you. But this is in our Bibles because the apostles needed to learn this important lesson, and that is that where God guides, he always provides. Ladies and gentlemen, some of you someday will be called to step out and serve God full time, to walk away from your job, and to enter in what's called full-time Christian ministry. If that happens to you, don't think, how am I gonna make it? How am I gonna feed my family? We're gonna be poor the rest of our lives. Don't think like that. Those thoughts dishonor God. He's a good, good father. And if you will seek first the kingdom of God, he will provide all of these things. It's easy for him. So if you're called, number one, make sure you're called. And then number two, step out in faith and watch God show up and provide. And when they went out, they preached repentance, which by the way, more and more is not being taught in our churches. And so in closing, I had to share what Chuck Swindoll said about repentance. And that is that repentance is not merely feeling sorry for sin. Repentance is a deliberate, radical, life-changing decision to turn away. Please say, turn away. 
Some of you guys need to turn away from some stuff. By the way, he's called the Holy Spirit. Be holy for I am holy. Turn away from the wrong direction and turn toward the right direction. And when you come to Christ, you deliberately leave your old way of living behind. Buried in the likeness of his death, the old man is buried, raised in the likeness of his resurrection. Amen? That's the word of God today. That's the encouragement. Live a life of repentance. If you're here today and you know, because I'm not gonna try to be the Holy Spirit and start naming a thousand sins, but if you're, you're here today and you know that you're in an unrepentant sin, I'm not gonna do a, an invitation today. I just want you to take the invitation home. Get alone in your closet. Here's what I wanna encourage you to do. Say, Lord, okay, that's what I was doing. I'm turning away from that. I'm turning to you, Jesus. I'm acknowledging that you're the only one who can give me the power to walk in newness of life. Please help me. You're not gonna be able to overcome that in your own willpower. But Jesus Christ has dunamis dynamite power that he'll give you to walk in newness of life. One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we wanna help. Visit our website at calvarypsl.com. Click on I'm new here, then knowing Christ.